0: Our scripture reading today is going to be coming from Psalm chapter 1, the entire Psalm verse 1 through 6. Please listen with me as I read God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In August of 2012, it was a beautiful day in the Italian Riviera, and it turned deadly. There was a portly man getting out of the water on a beach to dry off. He received a call on his cell phone, and our car pulled up and shot him seven times, at least seven times. So according to the BBC, the man was Gaetano Reno leader of the Camorra crime family, a mafia boss. He was known as Stumpy, because his hands had been blown off nearly 20 years previously when a bomb he was attempting to set went off prematurely. Police said that they believed the killing was part of a struggle for control of the cocaine business between rival mob bosses. Marino was part of the, if you will, the family business that placed him on a path that resulted in his death. So I'm thinking to myself, what a way to live a life that comes to such a horrible and tragic end. He chose a life of crime knowing that a possible outcome would be a horrific murder. So just like Gaetano, we must all make decisions and we must all follow a path. There's only two paths that we can take, you can't travel both. There's an African proverb that says, the man that tries to walk two roads will split his pants. <laughs> so a decision must be made: the way of the wicked or the way of the righteous. So as we look in the scripture today in Romans, I'm sorry, Romans is on my mind. But in Psalms 1, verses 1 through 6, we will identify two different sinners. And note two major categories detailing the evidence for righteous versus wicked living. I will say that we don't have to follow the way of the wicked and end up dead on a beach or walking around with split pants. So as Christians, we need to identify what it looks like to walk the life of the righteous versus walking that life of the wicked. I will say it's extremely important to be able to recognize which direction you're heading because... Truly, your life depends upon it. So first, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, number one, how to walk on the path of the righteous. So if we read Psalm one, it says, the one that is righteous does not counsel, sit, or stand in the way of the wicked. So a prevailing theme here is that we need to be careful with our time. So there is once a movie. His name was Peter, the guy in the movie. He hated his job and he didn't deny the fact that he would not be working on company time. So he usually comes in about five minutes, 15 minutes late, five to 15 minutes late, through the side door so he can duck and dodge his boss so his boss won't see what's going on. Then after he gets there, he gets into his chair and he kind of spaces out for a while, for about an hour. Then he does it again for about another hour after work. You know, and he would say himself, unapologetically, on a given week, he would honestly spend maybe only 15 minutes of actual work. So the negligence of the man, attention, the attention to that is just, it's just very sad because he's not only wasting company time, he's actually wasting his own time. Psalm 90 actually states, Psalm 90, verse 10 to 12, the years of our life are 70, Or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God is infinite, we are not, we are finite. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. Time is of essence. You guys may have heard that before. It's a statement that means that time is important in the context to what the present situation may be, or consider the statement, time is money. Far from true, far from true. There's a famous writer, his name is Israel Davison, and Israel Davison quotes, time is infinitely more precious than money, and there's nothing common between them. You cannot accumulate time, you cannot borrow time, you can never tell how much time you have left in the bank of life. Time is life. And there are many other sayings that, and expressions that would just talk about time, but essentially, time is important, it's precious, and we should treat it as such. Psalm 1, 1 reveals that the righteous man must be careful with his time by starting with a series of negative statements of things that you're not supposed to do. So the righteous man does not spend his time walking in the counsel of the wicked. So does not spend his time walking in the counsel of the wicked. There was a Christian man who was speeding and he was given a ticket. He decided to go to court and to fight the ticket, and he hired a lawyer. This lawyer was a little slimy and, you know, a little shady and liked to bend the truth a little bit so he hired this lawyer and he received the counsel of this lawyer this shyster and he was able to get him off on a technicality so he felt good at the moment but he also knew deep down it was sinful and it was wrong psalm 2 1, 4 says why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision, mocks them, ridicules them. Psalm 33 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel or the vice of the wicked or the ungodly is in direct opposition to God and his word. Those that reject him may convene in council with one another, have different types of groups that they put together, but they're brought to nothing because they're contending with God, the Lord, and his plans. Psalm 119, the Lord's word is forever settled in heaven. It's futility to go against the pursuit of the wicked counsel. Next, when it comes to time, the righteous man does not spend his time standing with sinners. Doesn't stand in the way of sinners. We have Richard. Richard is a recovering alcoholic. He thought it might be a good idea for him to go out and hang out with some friends at the bar. And although he was a little bit leery because he thought about it, he was was a little nostalgic, but at the same time, You know, he thought that it may actually bring him out of sobriety. But he pushed through the reluctancy in his mind and decided to go for fear of being ridiculed if he refused to attend. So Richard, he wanted to stand with his friends. So the English translation of the Hebrew word for stand is to tarry, to delay, to loiter, to remain. Essentially, the way we look at it today is we like to hang out. So it's hang out. Now, there's no direct wrong or anything wrong directly about hanging out with those that are sinners or not righteous, but it should be situationally based and very much cautioned. Can you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9? We're going to read Matthew chapter 9, verse 10 to 13. Matthew 9, 10 to 13, it states, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, they put tax collectors in the same category as sinners, and Matthew 21 even says they put it in the same category as a prostitute or a harlot or as Gentiles in Matthew 18. Pharisees were not seen very favorable. They were actually seen as the scum of the earth. Everybody hated them, well, except Rome, because they were doing Rome's bidding. Yep. Yep, they were hated indeed, absolutely. But Jesus had a way to stand in the way of sinners that was unique. He was showing them the love of God and appealing to them when he said, I came to not call the righteous, but sinners. They were not influencing Jesus. It was actually quite the opposite. He was influencing them. But I'm going to talk to you about another direction in which hanging out went very wrong. This is the story of Lot, and he was hanging out. So I'll set it up a little bit. And you can actually read along if you like, but I'm going to do it in a summation. So in Genesis 13, 12 to 13, Abram and Lot, they separated, Lot went his way, and he moved his tent towards Sodom to hang out. And then in Genesis 14, Lot was now dwelling in Sodom. So he went from hanging out around Sodom to in Sodom. And then 19, he was at the city gates, he met at the city gates with the two angels, who so at that time he was very prominent in Sodom, very prominent, very popular. And this was, again, I just want to note, after Abraham had interceded for Sodom and could not find 10 righteous in the city. Come on, just 10, you know, 50. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, please, 40. Couldn't even find 10. So you can read along in Genesis 19, but I'll go from there and I'm going to just do a summation. You can read it later as well. So Lot was at the gate of Sodom and invited the two angels into his house and strongly advised against them spending the night in the town square. He was confronted with the men of the town because he saw the men entered the town and wanted to rape them. Lot pleaded with them, oh, please don't do this evil act, and offered his daughters as a substitute. Lot tried to warn his future sons-in-law to leave the city because he thought, well, he was told it was going to be destroyed, and they thought he was just joking around. His future household was affected by spending time or hanging out. And around the wicked. They, specifically the son-in-laws or the future sons-in-law, were either not righteous men or were very apathetic to the flagrant sin that was actually around them. Lot was hanging out, again, with sinners. He was not necessarily buddies with them, but he was also influenced by them. He's keenly aware of the acts of the town, but didn't leave. Genesis 19, 15, you can look there as well, 15 to 16, says Lot lingered. It was not clear why Lot lingered, but it was so bad of his lingering to the degree that these angels had to snatch him up. They didn't just say, come on, let's go. They had to grab him and get him out of there. He took pause and did not move with haste. So hanging out and around sinners was pretty influential for Lot. Again, not in a good way. And then if we look at 26, verse 26, Lot's wife had a difficult time leaving what she now considered her home, and unfortunately became a pillar of salt as a result of God's judgment. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, Luke 17. You can look there as well, and this will explain a little bit more about Lot's wife. Luke 17, 29 to 32. I'm going to read it. It says, On that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down, to take them away, not come down. And likewise, let the one who was in the field not turn back, not turn back. Then it says, remember Lot's wife. She did such, she turned back. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna look back at Lot again. In 2 Peter 2, verse 7 through 8, it says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot was significantly affected. He was spiritually beat down on a daily basis by the depravity that he actually saw and that he encountered. It affected him to the point, this righteous man, that Far from perfect, as we can see in some of his practices, he was willing to give his daughters over to a group of people tolerating sin, dwelling in this depraved land, standing in the way of sinners. He was standing in the way of sinners or hanging out with them. That proved to be disastrous for him. Arkin Hughes, pastor, author, and theologian, he put it this way in a word lot was conflicted soul at the same time both offended and allured by sodom he liked prosperity the comforts the culture and the prestige but he was worn down by the filthy lives of lawless men and perpetually tortured in his righteous soul by the deeds he saw and heard he is not a caricature a joke written on the pages of antiquity lot is for real Again, this is why the righteous are cautioned to be careful with their time and do not stand in the way of sinners. But they are also not to sit in the seat of scoffers. In the movie, God is not dead. Josh is a Christian student who never thought that he would have to be confronted with fighting for his faith, even in a higher education setting. Unfortunately, he's shaken by his professor, Professor Radisson, and this teacher demanded that each student must deny God's existence to earn a passing grade. Although Josh tries to refuse, Professor Radisson, very influential, he informs him that he can't stay in the class unless he makes a strong argument for his position. Now this semester, it's going to end with a debate between Professor Radisson and Josh and at the class again the class not just Josh he's responsible for the class If the class remains unconvinced of God's existence Josh will fail Causing his academic future to spiral it is difficult It is difficult being in the seat of scoffers in the seat means to inhabit a place or a situation or to put plainly to sit with or listen to a scoffer joshua's in quite a predicament as he was in the hot scoffer seat turn with me to jude the book of jude we're going to read verses 18 and 19 jude verses 18 and 19 They said to you, "In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, the void of the spirit. Scoffers will do anything that they feel that is right to glorify themselves. The word divisions means that due to their arrogance, they are trying to make themselves look loftier or smarter than everyone else. They would consider themselves as cultured, or as we've heard it today, on the right side of history. And those that are followers of Christ are are not on the right side of history. They're more so following an archaic, patriarchal system that needs to be deconstructed and ultimately abandoned psalm 14 1 actually says something very good about this here it paints the picture of the scoffer the fool says in his heart there is no god they are corrupt they do abominable deeds there's none who does good this is folly for the atheist for a fool or a scoffer this scoffer has become resolute in himself, saying that there is no god there is no convincing this individual as their mind is perversely laced with total depravity. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It goes on in 21 and 22. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish, foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The scoffer is hell-bent on being right and denying the truth, even if this person is faced with blatant logic. Though the fool fights logic, God's truth, interesting enough, the fact remains, Romans 2.15 says that the law is written on our hearts, on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They're fighting against themselves, they're fighting against God ultimately. We know this scoffer actually. It's our family members, sometimes it's our associates, media personalities, neighbors, a college professor in this case, or any other person that exhausts himself against the knowledge of God. So righteous man is not to sit with scoffers, entertain their vain philosophies as stated in Colossians 3 8 but instead be prepared to answer the scoffer with the hope that's within them let me ask you this are you careful with how you spend your time are you seeking the advice of the wicked in important matters of life because you're hoping to get an answer that you want that helps your flesh are you hanging out with sinners and being influenced instead of being the influencer do you sit at the table of scoffers or embrace their foolish musings instead of speaking the truth of God and His Holy Word? The way in which the righteous spend their time it is of great importance. And not seeking advice at their counsel, not hanging out with the sinners, entertaining the scoffers this is good, and you will do well. However, the righteous man is also Deemed as such because of the time he spends in God's word. He needs to love God's word. Read with me Psalm 1-2. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's a newspaper columnist and minister, George Crane. He tells of his wife... Who came into an office full of hatred toward her husband she says i do not only want to get rid of him i want to get even before i divorce him i want to hurt him as much as i possibly can so dr crane says hey you know i got a really good idea for you here an ingenious plan he says go home and act as if you really love your husband tell him how much he means to you praise him for every decent trait go out of your way to say kind, considerate and generous, and be as generous as you possibly can, spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him, make him believe you actually really love him. And then drop the bomb, then tell him you get a divorce. And she says, "Beautiful, beautiful. Will he ever be surprised?" And she did it with enthusiasm, you know, as if. She really did love him. So, Dr. Crane didn't hear from her for a few months, and he says, Are you ready to know to now go ahead and get this divorce? And she's like, Divorce? No, 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 never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed the feelings, and the emotions resulted in emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as often. As repeated deeds, it is such when we spend the time in God's Word, giving it devotion, diligence and discipline as it is transformative to our thoughts, actions and emotions. Psalm 119 says, verse 35, "Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. This righteous person finds its purpose and treasure in the value of the word of God. To delight in his law is finding completion in their lives that would be missing if they were spending their time avoiding the pursuit. And what else does this mean? James 1, 22, 23. But be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So this righteous person, this righteous man, delights in God's word, is also a doer of God's word. Matthew 27. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So I would say an outward sign of the righteous delighting in God's law Is that you're loving others as yourself as Christ has loved us. How you love your neighbor as yourself should be embarrassingly meaningful because we really love ourselves a lot. The righteous man delights in God's law, precepts, and tenets. He knows that the word is not only true, which could be conditional, but it's truth, it's absolute truth. It doesn't change, it's immutable, no matter the situation, the circumstance, the time period, the generation, person, etc. God's truth is absolute, it never changes. Matthew 13, 45, 46, nails it perfectly. God's word is likened to finding a pearl of great value, rejoices and sells everything he has to buy it. It's a great pearl, of vast significance that should be valued more than anything that your heart desires. Anything. Next, the righteous person not only spends their time delighting in God's word, they also meditate upon it. They meditate upon it day and night. Henry Ford. Henry Ford once hired an efficiency expert to evaluate his company. After a few weeks, the expert made a report, which was highly favorable, except for one thing. And he said, it's, it's the man down the hall. He just, every time I see him, he's just sitting there with his feet on his desk. He's wasting your time and money. Henry Ford says, well, that man once had an idea that saved us millions of dollars. At the time, I believe, I believe his feet were planted exactly where they are right now. So taking the time and thinking about God's word is beneficial for the righteous man. We should be in the pursuit to not only know God's word on a simplistic level, but we should be wrestling through the difficulties and the depth and the complexity that the scriptures hold as well. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Meditation. So meditation is... It's translated from the Hebrew as visualizing the word, it means to visualize the word and see it in your mind, focusing on the words that transform a regenerated and a repentance center. It also means muttering, too. muttering those words under your breath, or thinking about them as you go throughout the day. Considering the depth of knowledge that God has given. Regardless of the situation, as well with this meditation, regardless of the situations, good or bad, that's happening around them, pleasure or pain, good or bad, he ponders and embraces God's word. Remember, God's word is truth, truth, absolute truth, never changes. It's always truth. Bartholomew Ashwood, a Puritan preacher, said this about meditation. Meditation choose the cud and gets the sweetness and nutritive value of the word into the heart and life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. So let me ask you this, do you spend time loving and meditating on God's word? Is the Bible the place that you go for instruction pertaining to all of life as stated in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Are you excited to hear, read God's word, listen to? So we know that the righteous man is careful with the time that they spend with who? Counsel, standing, scoffers. By not spending it with the ungodly and by loving and meditating on God's word. But he also spends time reaping from the sowing. And so God aims for the benefits of obedience. The righteous man, rather, aims for the benefits of obedience. And as a result of this reaping, the righteous are blessed. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. It's the story of a young boy that went to a local store with his mother. The shop owner, he was a kind kind man, was trying to give this child a large jar of suckers and invited him to help himself to a handful, but the boy kind of held back and he decided not to do it, not to go in and grab those suckers. So the shop owner pulled out a handful for him. So when he was outside, the mother asked, "Why, why did you do that? That's not typical of what you would do. And so the boy replied, because his hand is much bigger than mine. So how beautiful, how beautiful it is when others desire to give us good gifts instead of us heaping them upon ourselves. This is certainly the same with how God blesses us as well. Psalm 119, 1-2 says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies who seek him with their whole heart. These verses are a direct extension of the instructions that are given to the righteous man. So we look back again at Psalm 1, blessed is the man, and it started in the plural form from the Hebrew. So in the translation, blessed, it's translated as happy, happy is the man, or, oh, the happinesses of the man, or, oh, the blessednesses of the man. There's a lot of plurals in there. This signifies that the righteous man honors God's word and spends time and efforts accordingly, which results in an extreme level, maybe an unnatural level by the world standards of contentment. In addition to being blessed, blessed is the man, the righteous also reap the benefits of truth, truth that gives life eternal. So, Psalm 1, verse 3 and verse 6 He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Henry Augustus, professor of physics at John Hopkins University, was called as an expert witness at a trial during cross-examination. The lawyer demanded, what are your qualifications as an expert witness in this case? This guy is usually, I'll preface by saying, usually pretty modest and doesn't like to talk about himself too much. States, I am the greatest living expert on the subject under discussion. Later, a friend well-acquainted with, with Roland's disposition expressed surprise at the professor's uncharacteristic answer. And he said, Why'd you? And pretty much he's asking, why did you do that? And he says, well, what did you expect me to do? I was under oath. There are many ideas, philosophies, religions, and thoughts in our pluralistic society, and the righteous man has to navigate all of them. Those to which the good news of God's word has been veiled have even asked this question, what is truth? Pontius Pilate, remember him. He asked the same of Jesus, as he too was unclear of the answer. So looking at Psalm 1-3, it says that he will be compared to a strong plant or a tree, and if it's planted by streams of water, it will have a constant and sustainable life source in which to thrive. It will be healthy and produce as appropriate. Unless taken out of its habitat, it will not be brought to dishonor. It will not fail. This tree is strong and will forever grow. The Lord is good and is the one that ultimately accomplishes and brings forth this gift. John 5, 24 says, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word And believes him who sent me has eternal life it will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life those that are righteous that love god's law those that meditate it meditate upon it day and night are given eternal life through the giver the true giver of life god the self-existent one and the one who is absolute truth is aware of the challenges of this world, the cares and recognizes those that follow truth. So next, the righteous reaps blessings and is, again, happy, happy, has eternal life, and is also prosperous. Prosperity. Psalm 1, 3, in all that he does, he prospers. There's a man, John Wooden, He's a successful basketball coach for UCLA during their dynasty years and was asked his secret in producing stellar teams. His answer, well, we mastered the basics and we drill over and over again on the fundamentals. God has equipped the righteous man with everything that he needs to prosper, but he must follow that which the Lord instructed. So we're going to consider the story of Joseph Genesis 37 would give that account. He was loved by his father, Jacob, and there was some obvious favoritism which resulted in his brothers looking upon him with contempt. To add insult to injury, Joseph told them about a dream that upset them. He said that they would bow down to him and they would pay homage to him. He would reign over them. So they did normally what I guess brothers would do in sibling rivalry. They conspired to kill him. But one of his brothers talked them out of it, and they settled on selling him to some Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver into slavery. That seems a little more appropriate, I suppose. He he was eventually sold in Egypt uh, to Pharaoh's captain of the guard, Potiphar. So I'm gonna read Genesis 39, 1 through 6. You can read along as well. Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Genesis 39, 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, in the Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. and He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all he had. From the time he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph was a righteous man and experienced trial. I mean, he was sold into slavery. He escaped the advances of Potiphar's wife. He was forgotten in prison. He interpreted dreams. And he was given a promise to actually get out of of prison by the chief cupbearer, but he was forgotten. They forgot about him. Yet through all this, he was righteous, and in time, in due time, he was exalted to the position of prime minister or governor James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you in his timing and not ours. In his timing, not ours. Joseph's story shows us the righteous man on display even while enduring trials. Despite that difficulty, God chooses to show himself strong and consistently provides evidence that his word and promises are true. Are you happy, happy? Are you blessed? Are you content? Even when the trials of this life crush upon you, are you waiting on the Lord to bring the fruit? Do you trust when your vision is not able to see everything? Do you trust God in those times? Do you know truth, the truth that leads to eternal life? Do you have an answer, a defense for the hope within you? So now we know what should be done to live a righteous life, being careful with your time and the company you keep, loving God's word, and reaping the benefits of godly obedience. Next. The instructions on what the righteous man should avoid how to avoid the way of the wicked so therefore the righteous are blessed by living the wicked ungodly are not so we shouldn't judge God there's a question asked of Martin Luther and says since God knew the man would not continue in a state of innocence why did he create him at all dr. Luther laughed and replied the Lord, all-powerful and magnificent, saw that he should need in his house sewers and cesspools. Be assured, he knows quite well what he is about. Let us keep clear of these abstract questions and consider the will of God, such as has been revealed unto us. So Psalm 1:1 says again, Blessed is the man who walks out in the counsel of the wicked. There stands in the way of sinners and scoffers. Who are these people? Well, very simply, it is those who claim to be wise come up with all sorts of ways to imagine life without God, to imagine life without an ultimate judge, to imagine life free to pursue whatever they want to pursue, in short, free to judge God and determine what is best for them. Romans 1 actually talks about these people. For although they knew God, they did not honor him. Again, they knew him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, for they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And it goes on from there. The wicked are not blessed. And according to Ephesians 2.3, are children of wrath as they carry out their own desires desires of their body and their mind they love their sin they revel in the counsel of their sin they love to hang out with these sinful counterparts they seek after those that are champion scoffers who judge God and essentially say I know better than God they love their sin and proudly put it on display they are diametrically opposed to the righteous man in contentment, blessing, or any form of true happiness as defined in Psalm 1. So the righteous do not live as a wicked, and they will be spared to condemnation. But the ungodly will be as chaff driven true to and fro. So you need to fear God as the final judge. When Irving Old and was a chairman of the U.S. Steel Corporation, he arrived for a stockholders meeting and was confronted by a woman who asked, exactly, who are you? Why are you here? Without batting an eye, Old replied, I am the chairperson, of course. You know the duties of the chairman, who, that someone who is roughly the equivalent of parsley on a platter of fish. So those who do not follow Christ, are like parsley on fish. They may think that they're a big deal, but they are quite unnecessary. Their lives don't have the significance they imagine for themselves, and without trusting Christ, they are doomed. A person that is ungodly, the condemned, guilty, child of wrath will will not be prosperous, because God's truth, his gospel, has been rejected. The ungodly person is compared to the chaff of wheat, the useless part of grain that is blown off, sent in multiple directions without thought or care and eventually determined as refuge and sent to the fire. The preacher and teacher, John Phillips, quotes, the unsaved man is at the mercy of forces he does not see and which he cannot control. Here's a ship, its engines broken, it's steering out of order, caught in the grip of a gale, It is being driven by wind and tide toward the jagged rocks that guard the coast. Gripped by forces beyond its control, it is being driven straight to disaster. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What about John 18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Matthew 3.12 soberly states these words of those that are chaff. His one-way fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the fire, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Just before the death of actor W. C. Fields, a friend visited the hospital and found him thumbing through the Bible. And when he asked him what he was doing, he says, well, I'm looking for loopholes. We see in verse 4 of Psalm 1-4 that the wicked are tossed in every direction. They've wasted their time succeeding or winning in this life or the things of this world by reaping condemnation upon themselves. Luke 12, 19 to 21 says, And I will say to you, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will it be? I know of a story of a man who amassed great fame and riches on this earth who eventually died, as we all will. While at his funeral, there were some that were talking and saying, Man, this day is really, really sad. He was so successful. What did he leave behind? And somebody said, All of it. Sadly, this man wasted his life in pursuit of self and not as the righteous who pursue God and his word. God's divine law, God's divine law. His sentence states that we are, those that are self-serving and wicked are reprobate, condemned, guilty, and an enemy of God. For this, justice must be served. Psalm 5, sometimes controversial to some. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all evildoers. Everything that the sinner looks at in his, if you will, meology, filled life will fail. He will not be in good standing on that great day of judgment. Matthew 25, 41, and 46 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal life, but the righteous into, into eternal punishment, rather, but the righteous into eternal life. God will command the unrighteous to be condemned to experience his just wrath. They will have no argument. They will have no plea. They won't be able to fight whatsoever. There will be no, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind because he doesn't want it. It's depraved. It will be like Isaiah's encounter in Isaiah 6-5 when he said, woe is me. Man, I shouldn't be here. I am not clean. But the sinner... Will not have a covering. Will not have the covering of the sovereign one over his sins. There will be nothing but knowing that you are in front of a holy God. You will be driven out to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Psalm 1 5 says that there will be no place in God's presence for the wicked. Because God is the judge, just judge of all. No sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So today, the wicked and the righteous, they dwell together in the same communities, sometimes even in the same churches. But Jesus reminds us that he is coming again to judge. So as Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And they, the servant said, Master, do you want us to, they started growing together, started seeing weeds, and he says, do you want us to actually take out the weeds? He said, no, let them grow together and gather the weeds first and bind them in a, at the harvest time and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there is a period of time that the righteous and the righteous will dwell together. And God in his infinite wisdom will be the final judge for life eternal or everlasting condemned. Psalm 15 states, 1.5 states that the sinners cannot and are not meant to dwell with the righteous. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. Sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. Sooner could a fish live upon a tree than the wicked in paradise. Heaven would be an intolerable hell to an impenitent man, even if he could be allowed to enter but such a privilege shall never be granted to the man who perseveres in his iniquities are you following the life of the righteous or the wicked how are you spending your time are you bible or idol are you the blessed righteous man that spends your time studying and meditating on god's word and fleeing sin do you love his word Do you love his truth? Do you meditate on it? Does it echo in your mind and your innermost being? Or are you spending time seeking the things of this world and attaining the wisdom and the knowledge or the world's foolishness, all that's temporal? The things of this world, if you are in love with this world, you are wasting your time to death. This is a quote that was attributed to quite a few different pastors and theologians. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you're willing to pay. Have you trusted in Christ, or are you a child of wrath, dead in your sins and trespasses? 1 John 2:4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So which are you? The blessed, righteous, the one that's God glorifying, or the contemptible, wicked that lives in hostility towards God, with their end resulting in separation from him? Ask yourself Are you numbered with the sinner or saint? Are you numbered with the sinner or saint? Do you feel like your pants are splitting at times? After studying Psalm 1, I hope you'll have a better understanding of which path you're going on. And hopefully it's walking closely with God. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us instructions on how to live a righteous life, but also the sobering and truthful instructions for those that love the counsel of sinful men, the dealings of sinful men, and the scoffing of those that oppose to your word and truth. Help us to be those that are numbered with you. May we trust in you and seek you. And may you be honored and glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.